not long after uh, God began to move in our hearts and we sensed a shift in what he was doing, my wife and I sensed a shift in, in what he was doing in our lives, the Lord gave me a passage of scripture. I was in Colorado. My wife was preparing to move to Colorado with me and God had other plans. Uh, and um, it was after I had the initial contact with the guys here and we were just simply praying. And um, I couldn't know at that time that I would be sitting here, that was in April, that I'd be sitting here in October sharing that word with you. And again, what a privilege it is. Hadassah was a young girl. Her parents had died. She was orphaned. She had a cousin that was older that decided that she shouldn't be alone and became a father to her. They lived in a foreign land. They were surrounded by their own people, and yet their people were strangers in a strange land, much as we are. And Hadassah grew, and her cousin and she became more closely bonded as the years went by. She became a beautiful young woman. And Hadassah grew in beauty, inwardly and outwardly, until such a time as the ruler of their land was looking for a wife. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Esther. Hadassah is Esther's given name. Esther was her new name, uh, in much the same way as Belteshazzar was Daniel's given name. And yet Daniel was his name going forward. To set the background here, this is during the time of the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. What had happened was the Assyrians, the, the Chaldeans, had uh, attacked northern Israel in about 722. People kind of fuzzy on dates, but they had attacked the northern ten tribes and carted the people off to... Um, uh, the name just left me. <laughs> well, to Assyria, yeah, exactly, but, but to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And, uh, and there, the Assyrians were the ruling world empire. And then a couple of hundred years later, about 536 thereabouts, uh, the Assyrians had, were weakening. And then the Babylonians were coming to power, and the Babylonians were actually the, the Chaldeans, uh, the Assyrians being separate. And they came into power with Nebuchadnezzar and the whole thing with Daniel and all of that. And in the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, Jerusalem's actually in the, the, the area of Benjamin, and so Judah and Benjamin were taken off, and there were three deportations at that time. Well, and then there was another shift in the world empires. The Babylonians were overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Persians being what we look at. I, I met a, a guy one time, and I said, well, where are you from? He was obviously foreign, and he said, I'm Persian. And I believe he didn't want to say I'm Iranian because of obvious tensions internationally. <laughs> 
but that's it's modern day Iran. Whereas uh, the Babylonians would be modern day Iraq. And so there was, and, and is, strife between those countries. And so in this place, the people of Israel had been held captive from the 70, for the 70 years, from the time that they were deported, taken off uh, to Nineveh. And then when the Babylonians came in, they, there was a shift in world powers. And then from there, the Medes and the Persians. Now, when the Medes and the Persians came in, there was a king named Cyrus. And Cyrus, this is all to give you some background, just so you kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about this morning. Cyrus was the one who issued a decree for Ezra to go back and to rebuild, uh, not the wall, that was Nehemiah, but to rebuild the temple and to get the temple worship going. And um, uh, what Ezra did was, was to get the city back in shape and for worship in the temple to go forward and for the people to begin to re-inhabit the land. That was about 17 years prior to the days of Esther, of Hadassah. And her cousin is a man by the name of Mordecai. If you've been studying the Bible for long, you know the story. And there in this foreign land in Susa or Shushan, it depends on, again, which name you use, there was a, it was the capital city. It was called a citadel. And the citadel was actually the fortified core of the city. And that's where Esther lived. And her cousin Mordecai, who had become a father to her, evidently older. And there, they were experiencing strife with the rulers. Not so much with the king, because Esther had participated in sort of a beauty pageant, because the king, Xerxes, or Hazarus, again, two names, uh, Xerxes had dismissed his first wife. He, had, he was kind of a party guy and uh, had thrown this party and had invited his wife to come wearing her crown so that he could show her off. Uh, her name was Vashti. And uh, many commentators believe that that's all he wanted her to wear was her crown and that he was, and she refused she said, you know, essentially, I'm not going to be on parade. I'm not your ornament kind of a thing. And, and so she said no. Well, the king's counselors got together with him, and they said, well, you know, if you don't do something about this, then all the wives are going to turn on their husbands, and they're going to think, well, you know, we don't have to obey. You know, Vashti doesn't obey the king, so we don't have to, you know, toe the line. And so he dismissed her. Well, that left an opening for the throne, for the queen. And what was that, Francis? Lucky her. <laughs> Lucky her. <laughs> anyway, so he dismisses her and he sends out a search. He begins to do actually an empire-wide search. There were 127 provinces. This is a huge empire. And there are millions of people involved here. Well, so uh, again, Esther finds favor in the king's eyes and she becomes the queen and then Mordecai now is in a position where he is, he's a Jew and he's he sort of warned Esther, don't reveal your nationality to the king at this point because you might not be queen. <laughs> and for obvious reasons, there was, again, strife between the people. So that sets the stage for what's happening in Esther chapter 4. Now, what had happened was, and we're going to start in chapter 4 here, but after Vashti refused to parade herself and Xerxes found a new queen and 
he crowned Esther. Mordecai, her cousin, father, let's just say her father, her father, because he was a father to her. That's what it says. And Mordecai refused to bow to the king's people, to the, 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 the bigwigs of the land. And there was a guy by the name of Haman. He was the equivalent of the prime minister of the land. And when Haman would go by, and he was a very arrogant man, and when he would go by, all of the people would tremble and bow because he had the power to just kill them. And, and he had great authority. Well, Mordecai said, no, 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 I don't bow to anybody here in Persia. And that really ticked Haman off. Well, Haman had so much power that he got together. He was drinking with the king. That was probably a problem then. He's drinking with the king, drinking buddies. And he decided that, you know, I don't want just Haman dead. I want all of the Jews dead. And he sort of duped the king into an edict, uh, making a law that all of the Jews would be eliminated. And we're talking millions of Jews here. Over the empire, there would have been millions of people. Now, when the people were released to go back under Ezra, God's design was to bring the Jews back into the land. But only about 50 or 60,000 people went, and there were millions of Jews that had been displaced. And the question occurs to me, why? Why would there only be a remnant, a few people that would go back? And I believe there are probably a variety of reasons, but the prominent reason is that they had been successful. They had experienced prosperity. But the result of that, of being outside of God's provision and outside of God's plan for them to go back into the land, was they became spiritually lean. And I'm telling you folks, I know what that's like in my own life. Uh, I experienced great prosperity at one point in my life, and it was probably the leanest I had ever been spiritually. And it goes hand in hand. If you look down through church history, you see that when things get tough for the people of God, the people of God get tougher. And the people of God dig in and, and fortify their positions in Christ and actually take ground for the kingdom. Well, and when things get soft, when things get easy, when things get pretty nice, look at the book of Judges. It is just up and down, up and down, up and down. God would bless the people. He would bring prosperity into the land and the people would get lax and complacent and they would just sort of set God aside and start doing their own thing. And then God would bring a hand of judgment against them through another nation or through other circumstances and they would cry out to him and they would draw close. Well, what had happened here was very similar. The people in Shushan, the people in Persia, the, the Jews in Persia, had gotten kind of soft. And we'll see that revealed kind of subtly, but it is revealed in the text. So now here there's this edict that Haman has brought about that the Jews are going to die. And Mordecai is absolutely grieved. But I want to talk to you a, a bit as we go through here. Um, Esther chapter 4 Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. What's wrong with this picture? When things come our way, as Christians, what's the first thing we do or ought to do? 
pray. We should, why is it Mordecai praying? You know, Esther, I believe it's on purpose. Esther is included in the canon of scripture, and rightfully so. But the, the name God, the word God, is not mentioned in the entire book. You don't find it there. Is it part of the scripture? Absolutely, it's part of the scripture, because it shows God's hand in a backslidden people's hearts, in, in redeeming, purchasing, in, in actually keeping his people, keeping the lineage, keeping his people and delivering them from the hands of the Persians. So it, something that occurred to me about this is sort of a saying that I like, and it, it's the price of not praying when I'm able to pray is not being able to pray when I need to pray. I remember uh, years ago in my business, I had a number of employees and, and we started every day with prayer, every day. When I had, when it was just me, I prayed every day before I got started with work. It was just something we founded our business on Christian principles and we were going to stick to it. And then when it was one, we prayed. When it was 12, I was going, oh Lord, this is getting expensive. But the Lord said, pray. So we prayed. And we saw God do great things through that business. It was amazing. It was an amazing time, and it was for a season. But, uh, and, and with our employees, we would hire these guys that were unbelievers, and I'd say, look, no one will ever criticize you. And my employees were under strict orders, especially the believers. Do not ever criticize these people for not coming in to pray, because legally I can't do it. But, but really, just philosophically, it's like, I'm not going to try to force these people but I want to be an example to them. And, and so what would happen is I say, you know, you want to go wash your car, you want to call your wife, whatever. We start at 7 o'clock, be here at 7. I'll pay you from 7 till 8 because that's when we pray. And if you want to come to pray with us, great. And usually these guys, they'd be out there in the shop, they'd be doing different things, and pretty soon they'd be coming in and they'd be sitting and listening to our prayers. And then pretty soon they'd be saying, well, would you pray for my wife or my kids? Well, sure we will. And then pretty soon they would start praying themselves. And it would be kind of stumbly and nervous and ah, I'm uncomfortable with this. And then pretty soon they're giving their lives to Christ. And I had the privilege of baptizing most of my employees. And it didn't, yeah, of course, I was kind of tricky with them too because uh, I was stocking all of our trucks with teaching <laughs> Bible studies. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to unhook the radios, but I, I wasn't going to go that far. But seriously, it was just a great time. But it, what it showed me was the value of prayer and it, the value of being disciplined in prayer to the point where it's easy to pray. It's easy to pray. Uh, I love, I see my wife when we're out, and sometimes she'll see a homeless person and all that, and I'm not trying to put the spotlight on her. She doesn't like that. But the point is, I love when I see her, if there's a homeless person or whatever, I'll walk or I'll look over and I'll see her and she'll just put her hand in and I'll see them praying because she's unafraid to pray. She knows that the power is there. And, and folks, in our lives, we're going to talk about it as we go along here, but prayer is absolutely essential. Mordecai doesn't. And it's because I believe that his heart, his soul was lean. Good intentions. People out there in the world have great intentions. He's a great guy. He took this widowed girl, this relative, under his, into his home and, and became a father to her. And, and he, he's highly principled and all of that. But sort of the sin of omission here is that he fails to pray. 
So he puts on sackcloth and ashes, verse 4, so Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Now, I believe that part of this, too, now Mordecai, he gets up to the city gates, right to where the inner court's going into the citadel itself, and, and he's there now to be visible to Esther, and she sees this, and she wants to comfort him. She loves him, and so she wants to bring him comfort. He says, no, no. Esther, being sort of sequestered away from the rest of the population as the queen, wouldn't know what was going on with Xerxes or Haman or, or the things that are going on with her people. Uh, and she knows that she's a Jew, but the king doesn't. And so she's really kind of ignorant at this point. And Mordecai knows that, number one, he's grieved, and he's deeply grieved for his people, which is a good thing because God calls us to be others-centered, not self-centered. And so he sees that if I do this, I'm going to roll away the concern that Esther has. And so he doesn't. And Esther called uh, Hathach, uh, one of the king's eunuchs, and whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to go and learn what and why this was. Verse 6, so Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. Because Haman, part of his plot was he was going to give 10,000 talents ahead for the people that were destroyed. He had incredible wealth and power. He was a very prominent man, and he had the ability to carry it off. Uh, he was, for all intents and purposes, anti-Semitic. Uh, I mean, history is full of people who are anti-Semitic. I mean, the design of the God of this world, of Satan himself, our adversary, our enemy, has been and continues to be to destroy the Jews. We saw that in the last century with Adolf Hitler and with Stalin. Uh, people talk a lot about Hitler's misdeeds, but Stalin was a pretty bad dude as well. And, and the genocide that was about to happen here was something that we, again, have seen. Uh, my wife and I, when we were in Israel, we went to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, and it was... An absolute eye-opener. I mean, talk about a sobering experience that would bring one to tears to see the things that were done to God's people. Because if we look at Romans 9 through 11, we see that the Jews are still God's people. He's not finished with Israel yet. Uh, we could get into that. and I wouldn't finish this message. I, I'm really tempted to rabbit trail, but I will stay on task here. So Hathach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and, and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. She evidently hadn't been with the king for a month. 
So they told Mordecai Esther's words. So the king has a rule here. Don't come and see me unless I call you. And if you try to come and see me and I haven't called you, you're going to die. It's the law. And when the king in those days made a law, it was set in stone. It was the law. And so, I mean, it was not something that he could just retract kind of willy-nilly say, well, you know, I was in a bad mood or whatever. I mean, that's the way it is. And so Esther knows now that she is in grave mortal danger to even try to approach the king, let alone get anything out of her mouth to warn him of what's going on with Haman and this whole deal with the people. And so in verse 13, Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. In other words, you're a Jew, You think that you're putting your life on the line by going to see the king. Your life's on the line already. Don't even think that you're going to escape the wrath to come, the the king's wrath, because it's going to happen one way or the other. So what are you going to do, essentially, Esther? For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So Mordecai says, look, Again, implied here, he's beginning to look at God and to trust that God will raise up a deliverer for the Jews somewhere else. Folks, I'm telling you, one of the things, and it's a very prominent, solid principle in our lives, God wants to use us. He wants to use us in ways that we're not even aware he wants to use us. And he will use us. He does not need us. He, and he doesn't need me. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need my talents. He doesn't need my gifts. He wants to bless me through fruitful service. And that comes as a result of fellowship with him. It is never a means towards it. Ever. I have seen many times as a pastor over the last 20 some years where people have covered up a week walk with the Lord with service. Service is never a means towards a deepening walk with the Lord. A deep walk with the Lord results in fruitful service. It's never the other way around. You see, because God doesn't need that. What he wants is my heart. What he wants is me to be wholly devoted to him. What he wants is for me to be, as Romans 9 says, clay in the potter's hand so that he could shape and mold me how he chooses, how he wills, how he wishes. Again, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. But the point is, he simply wants me to be available for his use. He doesn't want me to construct this little thing of, okay, well, I'm going to do this and this and this for you, but that over there, no, 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 no. If that was the case, I wouldn't be sitting here. I had no idea that God was going to touch our hearts and move things in motion for us to be here today. And yet, simply want to be, again, clay in the potter's hands. That's the best position for us to be in. And it's the most blessed because he blesses that service as well. So he says, you and your father's house are going to perish and you won't get the blessing of being used. Is what's implied here, Esther, Mordecai telling her, So understand, God will accomplish what he's going to accomplish, whether he uses you or not. He wants to bless you through using you. And besides that, you're going to die if you don't 
except this. He says uh, at the end of verse 14, he says, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That was the word I got from the Lord back in April. I didn't share it with anyone. But as I began to pray, I had received this phone call about this church in Newburgh. I'd never heard of. Well, I'd driven through Newburgh, but <laughs> that was about it. And began to pray, and all the Lord gave me was just a simple word, the Holy Spirit. For such a time as this, John. For such a time as this. And oh, I knew it was in God's word. And as I began to pray that, Lord, is that something that you're... And, and again, as the months went on, because it wasn't there was, there was a process involved, but he began to reveal to my wife's and my hearts that he was shifting things in the spiritual realm in our lives. Many times people have come to me uh, as a pastor and said, what is your vision? What's your vision, Pastor John? What's your vision for this church? I'll share that. First of all, there's an aspect of, of, there are people that talk about the pastor being the vision caster for the church. And I don't believe that's biblical. Show me in God's word where that exists. It doesn't. But I do believe that God does give gifts and visions, but he never gives them in a vacuum. He gives them for service. And simply, my vision for us is that you and I have both been called. This is a, an important day in our lives. It's an important day in my wife's and my lives. Obviously, it's our first time here as your pastor. But it's your first time here in a new way as well. That doesn't mean we're going to come in and shuffle the cards and make everything all weird and all that. But what it does mean is that there is a fresh vision. And the vision is this. To pray. To simply pray. I do not believe that a church benefits greatly from devising a way for us to go out and reach people and then inviting God to get on board with our agenda. Again, I think that's cart before the horse. What I absolutely believe is that if we pray, if we are faithful to pray, and I mean pray, Every day, Lord, how would you move in my life? How would you move in this church's life corporately, in my life individually? Reveal it, Father. He will. He is the God we claim him to be. Absolutely believe that. He is living and active. His word is living and active, and he is living and active in our lives. I was talking to someone the other day, and it was like, I remember D.L. Moody had a woman come up to him after one of his uh, services, and she said, is God really concerned about the little things in my life? And his answer to her really struck me because it was simply profound. And he just said, is anything big for God? Really? I mean, the biggest thing in my life is not big to him. Does that mean he's unconcerned? No, he's not unconcerned with the affairs of our lives. He's very concerned. 
But he says, I want you to seek me. If you'll humble yourselves and pray, I will hear your, heal your land. That's what he says. He simply says for us to pray. And as things shift, what he says for us to do is to not call him to adjust himself to us. But as things shift in the spiritual realm, we adjust our lives to fit what that is. Because he's the king. He's the one with whom we have to do. He is the one that has called us today, here, now, for such a time as this. Essentially, what Mordecai is saying to Esther is what God says to us. I I remember my wife recently, I had a real strong exhortation to give a brother, an erring brother, before I left Colorado. And, and God opened the door for me to lovingly spend some time with this brother. And I, I talked to him, I don't know, a week or so ago. And, and praise God, he received it. And he's taking steps to grow, grow closer in his walk with Christ. To cast off the world that had been just invading his life. And, and we rejoiced. And, and Stacy said, she said, you know, maybe that was the only reason that God called you to go spend six and a half months in Colorado. And that would be one of those for such a time as this things. For such a time as this, I've called you to spend six months building a relationship with this man and then speak hard truths but loving truths into his life so that I may get his attention, that he may grow, and that he may lead his family in the ways of God. I praise God for the opportunity. What he's doing here, folks, it's a new time. It's a new day. I I told uh, the guys, you know, I I usually do visuals. I'll put things up on the screen and all that, and we'll we'll get to that. But this is more of a family talk this morning. Um, We're excited to be a part of the family now. We're excited to come on board and to see, again, with you, what God wants to do with this body. Because it is for such a time as this that we have come. It is for such a time as this that you have come. And we want to walk together in this thing and walk this thing out. You see, well, we're just a little church. There's there's not a lot of us. That doesn't matter one iota to God. If you look in the book of Revelation to the letters to the seven churches that are there, there is one church that gets a good report card. There's nothing that he can say bad about it. As a matter of fact, he has lots of things that are good to say about it. Of course, you probably know, it's the church at Philadelphia. One of the things he says to that little church is, you have a little power, and you've not forsaken my name. You have a little power. It wasn't like the great big church that had lots of money. That one was called Laodicea. didn't do well. But it was just a small group of believers that were faithful to stay the course, that were seeking the Lord, how would you use me? How would you use me in this community? How would you use me beyond this community? How would you simply use me? And that's exciting because that's something that God is in. That's the vision I believe the Lord has given me is for us to just sort of knuckle down together and to pray, and to seek the Lord, 
and to see how would he use us in this community in fresh ways? How would he take me out of my comfort zone? Because that's very often what he does. I, you know, I believe that God has a big eraser. I draw this little chalk line around myself. And, and that's my comfort zone. Don't, don't come encroaching on that. You're going to violate my space. And I'm not going to step out of that because after all, I might be challenged and come uh, yeah, uncomfortable and all that. And the Lord comes along with and he's And he takes that comfort zone away. Because he wants people that are not spiritually lean, you see. He wants people that are spiritually sharp. He wants people whose prayer life has honed them to being in touch with him. Because our prayer life is not just what I call the shopping list, which is good. He says for us to give our petitions to him. And to seek him. But he also says, you know, that prayer life, what it truly is, what prayer is, is communion with him. It is a two-way deal. I seek him and I listen. I say, Lord, what about me? What about us? Lord, teach me to listen, to settle my heart before you and to simply pray. And, and then watch the... the Watch heaven open. Because he says, if you do it, I will. It's not a maybe. Over and over and over again, if you look back in your life, if you've been a believer for a long time, or even a short time, you will see that God's faithfulness has has trumped everything that you've ever tried to do. If you simply humble yourself to be that person, to say, I'm the clay, you're the potter, I just want to do what you want me to do. If it takes me out of my comfort zone, great. Well, maybe great. <laughs> but, and because none of us likes being out of our comfort zone, but that's often what the Lord will do. So family, yeah, it's a new day, but it's also like the other days. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun Solomon wrote. And yet, it is a time for us to reflect and say, Lord, you've called me to be here for such a time as this. Verse 17, so Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Uh, Oh, she said, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go to gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, pray. Neither eat or drink three days, night or day, my maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. You know, what have I got to lose, essentially? And so Mordecai did, went his way, and did all according to the, that Esther had commanded him. She basically says, look, we're going to take this, we're going to elevate this to the spiritual realm. And let's see what happens. And I'm not going to go further in the narrative here, but the rest of the story is, is that God gives her favor in the king's eyes. He not only receives her, extends his scepter to her, which is a very, very good thing. He, he not only does that, but he hears her and he says, look, whatever you want up to half of my kingdom, I'll grant it to you. She says, well, I want to have you and uh, Haman come to a party. So they go to the party that day and she, he says, whatever you want up to half my kingdom. Well, I'd like to have Haman, you and Haman come to my party tomorrow. So they go home and 
the king can't sleep and he remembers that Mordecai had saved his life some time back. And he wakes up and says, you know about that Mordecai guy? I want to bless him. And so he blesses. He sets the things in motion to bless him. Well, Haman goes home and he's all puffed up. Well, hey, you know, Esther just wanted me and the king. Yeah, I'm a big shot. And he's, and it, it, really, you read it and you go, wow, this guy's totally full of himself. And, and he's like totally just raring to go to this whole party. And the king has decided to honor Mordecai while Haman in the meantime has his people build the gallows to Mordecai because he's going to kill him the next day. So the king's elevated him. Haman is putting him down. The people's lives are still at stake. And when Esther opens her mouth finally and says, look, you need, I'm a Jew and you need to get rid of this whole thing. She gets grace in, God, in, in the people's eyes, in the king's eyes. And he rolls away the whole reproach. He rolls away, he, he actually eliminates his own law, which was very unusual. The point being, prayer moves things. And it does. The people of God were resigned to lose the battle that was before them. Walking by sight, there was no hope for them. Esther was resigned until her fear turned to faith. I don't know if you're facing tough circumstances in your life today. Or if you're fearful. Or if there are things that you don't understand the outcome to. But I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, God is bigger than all of it. I I know in in the, the months leading up to today, my wife and I looking at different challenges that we've had and, you know, what do we do with this? What do, how do we work that and all? There have been a number of times where I've just looked at her and said, or she's looked at me and said, you know, God's got this. He's got it. All he wants us to do is to step into that which he has. Does it mean that we don't get stressed out? No. No. You're not going to find some false, pious answer to this. Yeah, I get stressed out sometimes. Yeah, sometimes things sideswipe us. Sometimes that phone call comes, whatever it is. It's really important to understand and know that God loves us. God loved these people. He wanted to use Esther to deliver them. If he hadn't used Esther, he would use somebody else. That was what Mordecai said, and I believe it. He wants to work in us. He wants to show himself faithful. He wants to bring us comfort in the midst of the storm. He wants to pour out his love on us. He wants to pour out his love through us to others. He's a big God. And that he would love us so much that he would send his son to the cross for us is amazing to me. Esther Hadassah enlisted the prayers of many and was sufficient to save the people. Not only were they saved, but they would be given the power to completely vanquish their enemies because after Haman was hanged on his own gallows, the king said, now what do you want to do now? And and they, they went after all of their enemies and actually had the king's permission to put them down, to, to get rid of them, to eliminate them. 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to look at something real quick here as we wrap up. Romans 8, verse 31. The Apostle Paul has been talking about suffering. Prior to verse 31, he says, For the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. We suffer. We go through things. Individually, we go through things as a church. But Paul, encouraging the people in his day, the people in Rome, in verse 31, he says, of chapter 8 in Romans, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he, who, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore has also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written in Psalm 44, For your sake we are killed all day long, and we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? I look at that, what does more than conquerors mean? Simply, in the world, if you're involved in a battle, you operate towards victory, obviously. Not so with us, not so with the church. We operate from victory, folks. The battle has been fought and won at Calvary. And when we are more than conquerors, as Paul states here, it is we operate from a position of victory. Considering that, where is fear? Where is fear? As we adjust our lives to what God wants to do, and he takes us out of our comfort zone often, where is fear? It goes away. Because we operate from victory. We are children of the king. For I am persuaded, verse 38, that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come. How many of you worry about tomorrow? Or things to come, nor height, nor death, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a glorious passage. I look at that as a companion passage to what was happening in Esther's day. Because through the cross, through the resurrection, we have been granted great stuff as our inheritance far surpassing anything you see in the old covenant we have these precious promises these precious truths in closing I want to look at a couple of things number one why are you positioned where you are why do you work where you work why do you live where you live why do you go to school where you go to school why do you go to church here You do what you do because God has assigned you there and here for such a time as this. For such a time as this. 
I had no idea when I moved to northern Colorado that I would be moving to Oregon from northern California via Colorado. It was craziness to me. And yet, for such a time as this, that's what God chose to do. So pray, folks. And when you're done, pray some more. Seek him. Diligently. That means you put effort into it. I can't emphasize enough the importance of prayer. The man who discipled me in the pastorate that went to be with the Lord last March was 82 years old, very wise man. I don't know how many times I talked with him over the years and he would just chuckle and say, you know, you know me, I just pray. And I learned a great deal from that. Rather than get out there and try to take things into my own hands and whip everything into shape and get this going, that going, and the other thing going and all that and be busy, busy, busy like a hamster on a wheel, running hard but not going anywhere, I learned the value of praying waiting for God to reveal it, and then adjusting my life to him. Huge, huge lesson. Because we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. We can't help but see a modern spiritual application here in the story of Esther. Satan is the destroyer, and many millions of people are going to hell unless somebody rescues them. Some Christians are like the king, eating and drinking and enjoying life, unconcerned about the danger. Others, like Mordecai, are deeply concerned to save a condemned people. And there are the Esthers, too, who sacrifice themselves to intercede on behalf of the lost. Often when I'm studying, when I'm preparing a message, (laughs) I am pierced. And I was pierced as I looked at this. This is a quote I found. Because the quote ends with, which are you? And the Lord was probing my heart when he said, which are you, John? Are you comfortable? It's not that he doesn't love us and want us to live good lives and prosperous lives and joyful lives. He does. That's his will. Revealed well. And yet he wants us on the cutting edge. A small church with a little power can do great things. We're in the last days. One of the things that I want to close with is just something to consider. We don't know when that is. We do know that there will be signs in the heavens and signs in the earth. Look around. Be wars and rumors of wars. Look around. Famine, pestilence, earthquakes. Look around. I'm not trying to be prophetic here. I'm just simply stating what Jesus talked about in the Gospel of Matthew. You see, that's not the end. But that's when the earth is in travail. It's like a pregnant woman. He says, you'll see these things like birth pangs, which grow in intensity and frequency as they go along. Are they? It's up for grabs. Do they exist? Absolutely. 
regardless. I love what I heard a man say one time. He said, you know, plan like you're going to be alive for another hundred years, which would be really something for me, uh, for many of us. But um, plan like you're going to be alive for another hundred years, but live like he's coming today. And that's a good word. Because we don't know the day or the hour. But we do know that he wants our lives to count. As vessels of his Holy Spirit, as representative. Who is the representative of Jesus on this earth right now? You and me. So do we get down and scrap and squabble about trivial things? Or do we have grace for one another and focus on the big things that God wants to accomplish in us and through us? We're going to have communion this morning. I know I've run a little bit over and I apologize. I just uh, wanted to tag these things. I'd like for Ed and Roger to come up. Would you guys pass out the elements, please? And if the worship team would come up also. For the, yeah, thank you. Consider these things, brothers and sisters. As they pass out the elements, um, let's just go to prayer and just seek the Lord. I would encourage you, as you will often hear me do, to do business with him. I love being in fellowship. I love hearing from the Lord. I love studying his word. And as you know, because many of you have been here for a long time, well, longer than me, one day, um, he honors that. And he wants us simply to apply his word to our lives, to adjust our lives to him. So as we consider Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, I'm glad I don't have to make it perfect, but he does. For the grace that he gives, for his spirit poured out. It behooves us to say, Lord, what about me?
Communion is an intimate time with the Lord. I, I was thinking as I was listening to the music uh, about the year of Jubilee in Israel. And the Lord had set it up for Israel to have a reset for their economy every seven years. If you had debts, they were erased. If you had property, it reverted back. And the whole thing would just reset. And in a similar way, what communion is for us as we remember the body and the blood, it's a joyous time. It's a time to reset. It's a time to draw near. It's a time to to do business with the Lord. And if there's anything that you're conscious of, I I love that the Apostle Paul says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. He he didn't say I'm not sin or I'm sinless. He said, "I'm, I'm not conscious of anything against myself. And it's a good place to be. If you are conscious of something that the Lord, the Holy Spirit is brought before you, do business with him on that. And rejoice that he gives us this time to reset, this time to revisit the one that we're passionately in love with, the one with whom our whole life, our existence revolves around. As we consider the bread, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, your provision in our lives is just astounding. That you would send your son, that he would become sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. What an exchange. What what a deal. What a powerful way for us to simply come before you with attitude of thanksgiving and, and, and praise that you would do virtually all of the work and simply beckon us to come. We thank you for the body of your son that was broken for us, that we may live. Let's take of the bread. In the same manner, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're told in the Old Testament, the life is in the blood. God knowing that the penalty for sin was blood. And that when Jesus' blood was spilled, it was spilled on our behalves to give us life. Praise him for it. Father, we uh, again are more than grateful that your son would go to that cross, that horrible cross, that wonderful cross, that he would take our place, that he would hang there until he uttered those words and it's finished. 
knowing that he had made an end of sin, that salvation would now be offered to any who would come. And not just salvation, but life, and that more abundantly. We praise you for the things that you've done, the things that you're doing, and the things you're yet to do. We thank you, Lord, for the blood. Let's take of the cup. Next week, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll start working our way through it together and see what the Lord has for us. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Have a wonderful day. God bless. Thank you.